ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by. And welcome to the DoorDash fourth quarter fiscal 2022 earnings call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, again, press star one. Thank you. Andy Hargreaves, Vice President of Investor Relations, you may begin your conference. Uh, thanks. So hello, everybody, uh, and thanks for joining us uh, for our fourth quarter 2021 earnings call. I'm pleased to be joined today by co-founder, chair, and CEO, Tony Shu, and CFO, Prabir Darkar. We'd like to remind everyone that we'll be making forward-looking statements during this call, including our expectations of our business, future financial results and guidance, strategy and statements regarding the recently announced acquisition of Wolf transaction results. Uh, forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from those described in forward-looking statements, and some such risks are described in our risk factors, including in our SEC filings, uh, including Form 10-K. You should rely on our forward-looking statements as predictions of future events. We disclaim any obligation to update any forward-looking statements except as required by law. Uh, during this call, we will discuss certain non-GAAP financial measures, information regarding our non-GAAP financial results, including a reconciliation, a reconciliation of non-GAAP results to the most directly comparable GAAP financial measures may be found in our investor letter, which is available on our IR site. Uh, these non-GAAP measures should be considered in addition to our GAAP results and are not intended to be a substitute for our GAAP results. Finally, this call in its entirety is being audio webcast on our Investor Relations website. Uh, an audio replay of the call will be available on our website shortly after the call ends. And with that, uh, we can go straight to questions. At this time, I would like to remind everyone, in order to ask a question, please press star, followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. Your first question comes from the line of Douglas Enmuth with J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Thanks for taking the question. Um, I know you're focused on maximizing the long-term profit dollars. Um, just hoping you could provide some more color on how to think about the near-term investment and loss levels in some of the new categories just relative to the profit and cash generation that you mentioned in the core restaurant business. Thanks. Hi, Doug. Thanks for the question. Yeah, that's right. We are focused on maximizing the scale. And the reason for that is because we operate in very large categories that are underpenetrated today. What I'll say is we're not breaking out the margins of the investments in our new categories other than to say that the U.S. business is growing nicely and has increased in contribution margins both in a quarter and quarter and a year on year basis. So that increase in profit is, is what we're funneling into these investments. And we're watching for core signals around retention and order frequency to make sure that they hit our return thresholds. Okay. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Yusef Squally with Truist Securities. Your line is open. Great. Thank you very much. Um, two questions for me, please. One, did you guys see any benefits from uh, Omicron during the quarter, and how has um, January, uh, and, and early February trended uh, versus your expectations? And second, can you maybe speak to recent trends in, in the competitive landscape, and do you believe as your, uh, your main competitor has been talking about that uh, you guys may have lost some, some share in the U.S.? Um, and if so, maybe just can, if you can flesh that out for us in terms of geos and product types where you feel you need to maybe uh, regain some share. Thank you. 
So maybe I'll start the Omicron question, and then Tony can chime in with the competitive landscape. Um, on Omicron specifically, uh, the impact in Q4, even January, has been relatively muted. It's not significant that I would call it out, and certainly not significant when compared to um, the impact we saw from COVID in uh, you know early in, in Q2. In fact, with every sort of successive variant, the impact on our business has basically diminished. And so, um, you know, the Q4 outperformance, um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't attribute that to, to Omicron. And Tony, if you want to comment on the competitive landscape, and yeah, um, hey Yusuf, um, we actually haven't noticed any share loss uh, in any time period. Um, you know, recently in the fourth quarter or for the year of 2021. And I think when you think about, you know, maybe why this is, it really just breaks out in, into, I, I think, you know, basic math, right? On new customers, we continue to be the leading um, acquirer of all customers that come into the industry for the first time. Um, and then when you think about, you know, the, the possibility of new customer acquisition, especially just given how deep some of these channels are, they're really deeper than any other possible channel in which you can acquire new customers into the industry. I think the second part of, um, you know, how you can gain share certainly is just, you know, what is the retention and order frequency of these customers? And we continue to have leading um, retention and order frequency in the category. And, you know, this has always been our focus, by the way, which is to make sure that we build the best product, which you can see is demonstrated through these leading um, both new customer acquisition as well as, you know, retention metrics. Um, and as a result, when I think about just it, this ties a little bit to, I think, the previous question that Doug was asking, just how large the core business um, opportunity is in U.S. restaurants, the fact that even as the share leader and, you know, continuing to be the fastest growing, um, you know, part of the industry, we're only 5% of U.S. industry sales. And I think when you look at all of our active users, while we had a record quarter of 25 million monthly active consumers, we're a, you know, single-digit percentage of the populations that we serve. And certainly as you start adding into some of these new categories, um, as well as international geographies, and there's the platform side of what we do with products like Drive and Storefront. I mean, we're a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the opportunity in front of us, and that's why, you know, we're very excited in investing. But that said, you know, in terms of, you know, how we view, um, you know, the future, besides staying disciplined in terms of how we make investments, it's first and foremost starts with making sure that we have the best product, which is going to offer the best combination of selection, quality, affordability, and service. And so long as we continue doing that, I think the scoreboard will continue taking care of itself. And just to just to add to Tony's points, you should answer your question directly. Over the last 12 months, we've gained two points of share, over two points of share according to third-party data sources. And specifically with respect to Q4, we believe we've gained shares. We do faster than our peers based on their publicly reported numbers for their U.S. businesses. Great. Thanks for the caller. Your next question comes from Ross Sandler with Barclays. Your line is open. Uh, hey, guys. Two questions. Um, so is there anything unique about the experience thus far in Canada and Australia that gives you confidence that once uh, Volt comes into the fray, that you'll be able to run the same playbook successfully. I think there's some skepticism in the investment community that, you know, the, the, what you see in the U.S. Is, is replicable in these international countries. So maybe just talk a little bit about that. And then, Prabir, your, your sales and marketing expense was actually down a bit uh, quarter on quarter in contrast to, to GOV being up nicely. 
So uh, I think the letter mentioned customer acquisition being a little bit more efficient. Can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Is that some of that retention you're talking about kicking in or, you know, uh, anything else on, on uh, marketing efficiency? Thanks a lot. Yeah. Um, why don't I take the first question on um, some of our performance and progress internationally, and then I'll, I'll have Prabir take the second question on sales and marketing expenses. Um, you know, with respect to our international progress, I mean, we're super excited in what we've seen, and that's why we're only continuing to invest more there. Um, and again, it starts with um, how do we find product market fit, and then how do we actually scale up our investments, you know, appropriately given what we're seeing. And what we see is, you know, increased, um, you know, selection that we're offering customers, better quality of experience, more greater and greater affordability levels, especially with our investments through programs like DashPass, um, and better service levels. As a result, we're seeing higher order frequencies, higher retention, um, increased, uh, you know, engagement, you know, with some of our new categories as well in these countries. And so, um, that's really what we're seeing from customers and, and frankly, you know, their uh, voice as well as their, um, how they, you know, choose to spend their dollars is, is really what informs us and guides us. Um, and, and so we're only seeing progress there. And I think, you know, those inputs are what has translated into, you know, certain outputs such as, you know, our, our revenue growth, order growth, category share growth, all of these things. So I think, you know, once we've nailed these inputs, um, that's why you're seeing, you know, the growth of the investments behind them. And that's why we're also really excited about the Volt Partnership, because we'll get to do this on a bigger scale across over 20 countries. And Prabir, you want and to take a question on sales? Yeah. yeah, and just to finish up that, that point, I mean, there's obviously been category share growth that Tony alluded to. But in addition, I mean, uh, you know, we stay super disciplined when it comes to these investments. You know, that's what's allowed us to grow the U.S. business, and we're playing the same rigor to whether it's new categories or international, and we are seeing margin improvements. And so that then allows us to invest more with, with greater confidence. So uh, let me let me just conclude on that point. And on your, on your question on sales and marketing, um, the reason why sales and marketing declined was because our driver acquisition, our dasher acquisition costs were lower quarter and quarter. You know, as we'd said in, in uh, earlier, uh, quarters, you know, we fixed the undersupply situation that we faced earlier in Q2, and we find ourselves well-supplied, and, and we expect to be well-supplied in 2022. And the big reason for that is because the, the, the people that generally become dashers are a very different audience than the, the, the types of people that, um, that the, the other gig economy competitors are, companies are competing for. So specifically, I think we've said over 90% of, of dashers said you know, that they have no plans to drive for rideshare, and only 4% say they prefer, prefer to, to, to drive rideshare compared to food delivery. And so, you know, uh, the reasons for that is because, you know, you don't need a car to, to dash. You can dash on a scooter. You can dash on a bike. Um, it tends to be safer because you're not sharing your personal space with another human being. So as a result of that, it's a very different audience that we can we can go after. And, we, and because we find ourselves uh, well-supplied, you know, those, those dash acquisition costs and the resulting sales and marketing costs decline quarter and quarter. Your next question comes from the line of Deepak Nativanan with Wolf Research. Your line is open. Hey, guys. Um, thanks for taking the questions. Two questions from us. So first, Tony, in 2021, you know, you guys launched a lot of new offerings and expanded across many verticals. The pace of innovation was pretty strong. But as we think about 22 and maybe even 23, you know, what are one or two main initiatives you feel is ready to graduate and kind of become more meaningful on financial KPIs um, in the next, like, you know, 12 to 24 months? 
And then uh, second question, maybe for Prepare, you know, it seems like MAU was up 20% last year and frequency was also up pretty nicely, you know, but as we think about your guidance, 19% DOE growth at the high end for full year, how should we think about the assumptions for MAU growth frequency and AOV for this year? Thank you. Yeah. Um, hey, Deepak. On the first question, you know, appreciate the comments on, um, you know, pay the product innovation. We're always trying to accelerate that, um, especially when we hear signals from how we can serve customers better, whether they be consumers, merchants, or dashers. Um, and so we're, we're constantly, um, you know, trying to increase the pace, um, you know, when we see that opportunity. And only until we find product market fit, you know, do we actually scale them into, you know, um, fairly large businesses. And I think we've had a track record of doing this now, whether it's um, you know, certainly our core U.S. restaurants business, then, you know, building products on our platform like DoorDash Drive as well as, you know, Storefront. Um, uh, we're the leading category player in the convenience category, in the pickup category. Um, we've taken, you know, businesses pretty much from scratch in these new categories of convenience, grocery, um, and other categories from zero into now you know, billion-dollar, you know, plus scale businesses, uh, we like, you know, what we're seeing from a product market fit perspective, and we're constantly trying to make every detail right within each one of these categories. Then do we stage gate, um, you know, further investment into, you know, growing these, um, whether it be into new geographies, um, into more merchants. We doubled the number of non-restaurant partners, for example, in our marketplace in 2021. Um, but we have a lot of work to do. And so, you know, the way I think about it is, you know, um, so long as we stick to our investment philosophy of making sure that we build the best possible product as measured by um, our retention and order frequency, um, and we stay disciplined in how, you know, we can, you know, scale them, not just with capital, but frankly with um, the right leaders placed in these initiatives, um, as well as the right team allocated to those leaders, we'll be in a great spot. And then, Deepak, on your question around the 22 and obviously the longer-term outlook, look, at its simplest, the goal is to increase MAUs and to continue driving up order frequency. We don't run the business on a, on a one-year clock, and we, we think about planting seeds for many, many years in the future. So the, the way to think about it is these categories, even the food categories, are to be underpenetrated. In, in that core business, at our current run rate, we're less than, you know, still alluded to 5% of total U.S. restaurant sales. And so even in core food, there's the significant room for continued adoption and engagement increases. Now you add to that these other categories that were made initial forays into, right? Whether it's convenience, grocery, alcohol, pet food, retail, and so on. These are massive markets that are also you know, lower, lesser penetrated compared to the food category. So when you put these two things together, you know, it's an exciting opportunity set ahead and basically signals that we're seeing in terms of early adoption and engagement as we transition from being, you know, food delivery app to basically all of your serving all of your local commerce needs, you know, it gives us confidence that we can sustain a, a healthy growth rate for a long period of time. Got it. Okay. Thanks, Prabir. Thanks, Tony. Your next question comes from the line of Andrew Boone with JMP Securities. Your line is open. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, two, please. One, can you just update on your progress on advertising, and can that contribute to 2022, or is it, is it a longer-term initiative? And then secondly, on non-restaurant verticals, where are you seeing traction with consumers? Is it, is it grocery? Is it alcohol? Can, can you be a little bit more specific there? Thank you so much. 
Sure. Um, uh, on, uh, I'll take both of those and feel free to add for beer. You know, on the first question around advertising, um, we're seeing tremendous excitement pretty much actually from all of the stakeholders, um, from advertisers, from retailers, from restaurants, from, um, you know, consumers. And, and, and to me, um, it, what's really important is making sure that, you know, we can achieve two objectives, which sometimes can, can come at odds with one another. One is how do we, you know, um, offer the best return and uh, advertiser uh, return in terms of their return on spend. Um, and the second is how do we make sure that we certainly not degrade, but ideally improve the consumer shopping experience. And, and these are the two things that we're constantly focused on, you know, and so we're in no rush to monetize, although we're really excited by what we're seeing. Um, but, but these are kind of, you know, our objective functions, if you will, when it comes to advertising. Um, it's uh, doing really well. It's off to a tremendous start. There is extraordinary demand. Um, but I think staying disciplined on, again, building the best possible product to allow us um, to have these long-term sustained, um, you know, periods of growth is, um, is what, is how we, we think about this. Um, with respect to, I think, the new categories, we're actually seeing, um, traction within each category. And, and I think in some regards, this is probably not a surprise. I mean, just think about some of these categories, whether it's, you know, things that you're stocking up in your pantry or grocery shopping or, um, you know, everything in between. I mean, these are the highest frequency possible categories when it comes to consumer spend. And all we're really doing is, I, th I think, adding to the incremental demand on one side by um, making sure that customers can get things delivered in minutes, not hours or days. And then on the other side, we're enabling these retailers and merchants to be able to do it through their own channels, their own apps, their own websites. Um, and so I think for those reasons, um, that's, that's why we're seeing this growth. I mean, I think as you saw in our shareholder letter, um, you know, on an aggregate basis, about 14% of our monthly active shoppers have, um, you know, shopped in a category outside of restaurants. Um, but that number is substantially higher than that in hundreds of markets already. And so, and this is um, pretty universal across categories. And Andrew, just to, on your, just to go back to the advertising question, we are expecting advertising revenues to grow in 2022, but we will invest those incremental profits into, into growth initiatives with the, the aim of maximizing long-term profit dollars. Great, thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Eric Sheridan with Goldman Sachs. Your line is open. Thanks so much. Maybe just dovetailing with some of what we talked about so far, you know, as you as you move into more categories and you think about more product evolution over the long term, I think in the shareholder letter there was a comment about retention and frequency and LTV. You know, how should we be thinking about the long-term margin structure or the long-term LTV, the CAC in this business now versus maybe the pre-pandemic period when you IPO'd a couple of years ago? And how would you frame what you've learned over the last couple of years with respect to that? Thanks. Thanks for the question. Uh, just to to, to um, uh, let me take uh, that question. Um, the first thing I'd, I'd say is um, what we shared in the letter was meant to be a framework for how we think about um, how we manage the business. So today we're not managing the business to a certain margin. We're not trying to increase margins quarter and quarter. We're not trying to manage to an absolute amount of EBITDA. Instead, what we do is we invest, and we invest in areas. We start small and we look for signals along two dimensions. The first is product market fit. So, so we alluded to the fact that 14% of our NAUs use, um, you know, verticals outside of food. 
that's a signal of product market fit. We're looking forward to frequency signals. We're looking for the impact of, of um, initiatives and actions we take on, on retention on the core platform, whether it's a digital to the core platform. If we see product market fit signals, that's one criteria that's been met. The second is are we making progress on, on unit economics? And we have a view for each business what you know what target unit economics need to be in order to, to, to meet our return thresholds. And so we're looking for steady progress. When you see both of these things, like we have with our new verticals, like we have with our international business and with our platform business, that's when we start scaling up our, our investments. And so that's the framework we, we, we generally use versus trying to, to, to target a certain margin. The reason we included that example in the shareholder letter was to, was to you know, provide a case study of how we think about it. Because if you were, if you were trying to grow margins period on period, a product like DashPass would never come to be. It just wouldn't because on each order, DashPass has lower unit margins. But as we said from the beginning, if you're optimizing for long-term profit dollars, and we have confidence in the increasing order frequency of the DashPass program. As a result, the total dollars we can generate per user on the platform are higher compared to the alternatives. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not avoiding the question legitimately because we aren't running the, the, the business to certain target margins, but we're happy with the progress we're making on maximizing long-term profit dollars. The one thing that gives me further confidence or sort of room for upside is the advertising opportunity. Right, the advertising opportunity only grows as our users and our engagement grows. And today, compared to you know a year ago, with a 20% more MAUs compared to several years ago, with three, four times the size of our business. And these individuals are engaging with us, not just in the restaurant vertical, but across all of these different other verticals, and 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 over multiple surfaces within the app, which then gives us a tremendous opportunity to not just um, uh, uh, you know create new business lines, but also generate advertising revenue with a healthy ROAS. And so I, I think of that as upside to the model. It's not something that that uh, you know that we should make in certainly in the near term because uh, we need to be very careful about how we we you know not just enable an advertising device but do so in a way that doesn't degrade the consumer experience. The only thing I'd add to what Prabir said is really you know I think the latter part of the question around you know what have we learned kind of you know during the pre-COVID versus kind of post-COVID era of behavior. It's just the resilience of the category and how I think we've put to rest, I think, this question of, you know, what happens to demand as, you know, diners go back and eat inside restaurants. Well, I think clearly takeout and delivery, um, as shown by, you know, our performance, not just in the fourth quarter, but also in 2021, just um, in an aggregate is that they're complementary. You know, it's very possible to eat inside of a restaurant and get delivery because we eat three times you know, or, or more maybe um, per day, and, and that's over 100 shopping moments um, per month. And then you start adding in these other categories, and you just ask yourself the question, well, is it complementary to go inside, you know, shopping malls or other types of stores um, and maybe get it, you know, delivered online or over the Internet? And I think, you know, that's kind of what we've seen um, certainly in the restaurant delivery business, and we're starting to see that in all of our other categories. Your next question comes from the line of Bernie McTurnan with Needham and Company. Your line is open. Great. Thanks for taking the question. Um, I've seen some examples on the app when I ordered dinner, for example, and might push me to order ice cream from another local store. I imagine new categories like grocery and alcohol and convenience are probably incrementally less time sensitive, so there's probably even a greater opportunity for dashers to go to multiple stores for the same customer. But is that a substantial opportunity either from a 
cost efficiency perspective or higher GOV or maybe some potential advertising opportunity? Um, hey, it's Tony. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll take the question. I, I, I think it's a really good point, and, and I think this kind of, you know, really is very exciting for us because it's a thesis we've had since really day one at the company, which is, you know, this business, um, anything, you know, last mile and, and local commerce is, is really about building greatest order density. That's why we started with restaurants, right? It has the highest count of stores across every category of local retail, restaurants do, that is, um, and it has the highest frequency of use, um, which is what gives you the possibility for the highest order density. And if you can start with the highest order density, then you have a lot of optionality, um, optionality to do some of the things that you describe of bring other types of things, and I think hopefully being useful to consumers and different kinds of merchants, which therefore provides more um, flexible work opportunities for dashers. It also provides opportunities to do, I, I think, some of the things you described around, you know, logistics efficiency. Um, but, you know, to us, it's just, again, it goes back to, you know, how do we become more and more useful um, in people's lives, right? How do we solve m more jobs for a consumer as we think about, you know, every shopping occasion they have? And again, you know, while we have impressive order frequency, um, it's a small fraction of actually how much shopping that actually takes place, right? Um, so we have a lot of work to do, I think, to solve even more jobs. And I think the same is true for merchants, and not only in helping them build their channels, but doing other types of jobs for them. That's why we have our platform services business. Um, and I think together, if we can do these two things, we'll provide the greatest number of work opportunities for dashers as well. And so um, you're absolutely right um, in, I think, a lot of the the, the assumptions um, you know, behind the question. Um, but to us, it just starts with how do we build the best possible experience in solving the most number of jobs. Great. Thanks, Tony. Your next question comes from Michael McGovern with Bank of America. Your line is open. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my question. I was just wondering if you could dig a little bit more into the chart about Dash Pass order mix versus contribution profit per active consumer. I thought it was pretty surprising and interesting to see that there's such a wide variance of Dash Pass order mix and also the contribution dollars. So I was wondering, you know, what causes some cohorts to lag and then is it kind of just a function of time to get those lagging cohorts up to, to that close to $25 mark of contribution profit per active consumer. Thanks. Hey, thanks for the question, Mike. Um, and it's a good opportunity to explain exactly what the chart is because we got a few questions uh, ahead of the call. So um, each dot on the chart is a quarterly cohort. So each this quarterly cohort starting from 2019 all the way through to the third quarter of 2021. And along the, the x-axis is the percentage of the orders from that cohort that are dash pass orders. On the y-axis is the Q, is the, the, the in quarter, the Q4 2021 contribution profit per active user in that quarter for each of these cohorts. And as you can see, there's this, this positive correlation where the higher the dash pass order mix, the higher the contribution profit per MAU. And uh, you know, this goes back to the, the answer I gave uh, to Eric to his question, which is, you know, with DashPass, we're making a trade-off to accept lower unit margins in exchange for significantly higher order frequency. And so as the order frequency increases, you generate more orders, and those orders translate into greater cumulative contribution profit for each user. Now, to your question on what drives the variance, it's largely time. 
on the left side of this chart are basically newer cohorts. The right side of the chart are the older cohorts. And so generally, as time goes by, people, you know, consumers get increasingly habituated. They start using the product, and, and you know, Dashpass starts making financial sense because once you start placing more than two to one half orders, you know, the product pays for itself. And so what you see is over time, as you as consumers save more money, they start using and adopting Dashpass, that then further drives up their their order frequency. Got it. That's really helpful. And I guess one quick follow-up on order frequency. I was just wondering, and, and on the 14% of customers that are now trying non-restaurant ordering for the first time, or, or excuse me, just, just using it, um, do you expect that restaurant and non-restaurant can exhibit similar order frequency trends long-term, or do you think that, you know, eating and ordering from restaurants is fundamentally a higher order frequency kind of market? In general, people's activity on our uh, on our app resembles how they operate in their daily lives, right? So if you think about, you know, this question came up sort of, you know, a few quarters ago when we went public around, you know, um, the mix between national brand restaurants versus local restaurants. And frankly, it replicates what you see in the industry. Similarly, with with areas such as convenience and grocery and, and, and alcohol and pet food, essentially over time as people's awareness of DoorDash builds and as our selection builds in the neighborhoods that they live in, their behavior offline and online, you know, will will converge. Today, it's lower because that level, you know, we're still making progress in terms of the selection quality affordability paradigm in order to hit the sweet spots that more and more consumers start becoming aware of DoorDash, you know, as, as, a, as an on-demand way to actually get access to these verticals that are adjacent to food delivery and the ones that they use. So short answer to your question is, over time, I expect the order frequency to basically mimic how people shop in their in their, their daily lives. Got it. That's great. Thanks so much. Your next question comes from the line of Lloyd Walmsley with UBS. Your line is open. Uh, thanks. I have a couple if I can. First, just you know, thanks for sharing the updated cohort data. If we just focus on maybe the narrower subset of users added during the pandemic, do you see consistent, you know, frequency and retention uh, on those newer cohorts compared to old, older cohorts, and in particular in in markets that that have reopened more than others? Um, and anything you can kind of share on how you think that's going to play out uh, over the rest of this year in terms of the cohort behavior and what's embedded in the guidance. And then, uh, secondly. On grocery, at the, at the time of the IPO, I think there were still some question marks around the unit economics and scalability of grocery. You know, as you guys have progressed and learned in that category, you know, how do you feel today about your ability to generate attractive unit economics and kind of how is that informing how you go to market on the grocery side? Thanks. Great. So uh, the first thing, let me just say, is that um, the retention – Pre-COVID versus COVID, right? In the, the it, when we were in the middle of COVID in 2020, retention spiked. It was at all-time highs, right? And then from there on, in 2021, you start to see a slow normalization to retention, especially as vaccination rates increased and and in-store dining resumed. We're at a point now where in and by the way, in 2021, early on in 2021, we were bolstered by the effect of stimulus payments that had you know a, an upward in, uh, impact on both retention and order frequency. Where we're at today is still better than pre-pandemic levels. 
but the retention has now normalized where it's slightly above pre-pandemic levels, but not substantially. Order frequency is substantially higher compared to pre-pandemic levels as well as, you know, uh, 2020 levels, but that's because of continued improvements to order frequency, both within the dash pass cohorts as well as the non-dash pass cohorts. Yeah, well, and, and on the second question around grocery, I mean, here, here's like the way we think about it, right? I mean, when you look at our portfolio of priorities, we have the U.S. core business uh, of, of restaurant delivery. We have these new categories, one of which you're referencing, grocery, um, platform services, international, and advertising. Um, you know, the way we think about them is uh, really h- how are we doing against their life stage, right? Um, obviously, a lot of these businesses, um, you know, performed actually quite recently, um, you know, a product like grocery, for example, is only about 12 to 14 months old. Um, we love the trajectory of the business, both top and bottom line, but it's still in its earliest innings. And so right now the focus continues to be making sure that we keep improving, um, you know, the product experience, the selection of, of, of partners that we can bring on and, and, and the inventory, um, you know, from these partners, the quality of the experience itself, the affordability of of um, these deliveries as well as the service levels. And so that's really the focus right now on, on grocery. And, and again, like um, the way we think about making these investments is in a fairly disciplined way of making sure that we find product market fit before we actually scale these things out. And so when we do scale these things out, um, they tend to already have very, very robust unit economics and, and cohort performance. All right, thank you. Your next question comes from the line of James Lee with Mizuho. Your line is open. Great. Thanks for taking my questions. My question is on Dashmart. Maybe can you guys talk about the expansion plan, maybe for FY22, and what are the key learnings so far? And just curious, what do you need to see for this business to scale? Would you consider M&A or partnership to expand this segment? Thanks. Yeah. Hey, James. It's Tony. Um, so on Dashmart, um, we really like what we see. Again, like this is another one of these, you know, newer initiatives, um, you know, about a year and a half old. Um, and, you know, what, we, what we're learning, I think, are benefits really for, um, you know, a, a, a starting with a couple of audiences, and I'll, I'll talk about how it translates into a third audience. So first, for consumers, um, a lot of these Dashmarts are just bringing selection of inventory into geographies where, frankly, it didn't previously exist you know, whether literally it never existed or, you know, the hours of, you know, operation is now, you know, opened um, pretty wide to 24-7 now, which um, is, is, is a big improvement for what consumers are seeking. I think, you know, with respect to merchants, um, this is critical infrastructure for a lot of them, either to expand into new geographies or to, you know, increase into different hours of operations. And and so what we see um, is, is really dashboards on a fairly long, you know, investment time horizon. Again, staying disciplined around finding product market fit before we choose to scale these things out. Um, but what we're seeing is, you know, quite a lot of demand for them. And, and, and I think it really speaks to, you know, again, you know, what we're trying to create at DoorDash, which is really the largest local commerce, you know, app or marketplace where we're bringing incremental demand and the largest local commerce platform where we're building tools and infrastructure, you know, obviously starting with delivery with products like Rest Drive, but if you think about all the other products and services that merchants need to build in order to compete digitally in today's economy, well, it certainly expands far beyond just logistics. And so dashboards are really a form of infrastructure 
um, you know, uh, you know, to store inventory, um, to possibly enter new geographies, and, and certainly, you know, expand the, um, the, their hours of service. And so, um, we plan on investing uh, in, in this category, in, in this line of work, for a really long time. You know, for those reasons, and obviously, if we can build both, you know, a marketplace and a platform with dashboards, I think it'll provide tremendous work opportunities for dashers. Um, but again, the investment philosophy stays the same. Uh, given how you know young dash marts are, it's making sure that we have great product market fit, and then um, we'll continue to scale them. And, and one quick follow-up question, Tony. Here, when you look at the non-restaurant business in general, I, uh, two parts to this question. When you look at user behavior, do they tend to be more recurring in nature? Are they more impulsive? And also, second, for your uh, non-restaurant business in general, can you be profitable over time without advertising? So um, uh, on, on the non-restaurant category, what we're seeing is um, pretty much uh, it, quite a lot of, you know, different kinds of use cases. Are, are, are there people who just shop for impulse purchases for, you know, whatever the occasion might be? Yes. Um, but predominantly, we're, we're seeing people come back for, I, I think, a lot of use cases I mean, uh, where, um, you know, the recurring behavior is looking for uh, that middle-of-the-week run now being solved by somebody else, right? That's really the job um, that we're solving for a lot of these customers, right? Like when you think about the items in your pantry that get consumed the earliest or the, um, you know, items in your refrigerator that maybe perish the, the earliest, those are the things um, that actually um, it, it, um, th those are the types of things where you have to go back every single week no matter how much you buy on a weekly basis, right? And those are the jobs where people have to do every single week. And um, and so we are seeing um, certainly both, with, uh, although more of the behavior is recurring. Um, and then uh, I'll let uh, Premier take, I think, your second question, which is really around, I think, the business model. Yeah, and, and James, we have not um, disclosed anything about the, the business model around uh, around um, non-restaurant verticals, and uh, uh, so no comment on that, on that question. Okay, thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Mark Mahoney with Evercore ISI. Your line is open. Okay, thanks. Uh, two questions. When you think about the um, number of Dash Pass members now, you have it at uh, over 10 million out of um, whatever 25 million MAUs. What do you think are the obstacles to getting that penetration higher? I know it's high, 40%, but you know I would think given the uh, value prop um, and the frequency of the activity, that that could get into 60, 70%, maybe long term. So what, what's What's, what are the biggest things you have to solve for in order to get that penetration higher? And then any quick uh, updated comments on Prop 22? And I know there was uh, the AG reversed or challenged the, uh, the judge's decision that, that, uh, earlier this month. Any updated thoughts on how that's going to play out or, what, or when we'll know? Thank you. Yeah. Um. Prabir, you want to take the first thing? Yeah, I think, uh, why don't I take the first one and you take the second one? Okay, so uh, uh, Mark, on your question on, on the 10 million out of 40, yes, the 10 million was, in, was a, uh, a milestone. We're happy with it's 40% of our of our MEUs, but there's a lo there's a lot of runway here, right? And as you think about, um, uh, I mean, with 25 million MEUs, we're a small fraction of the U.S. population. Now add in you know, the other countries we operate in, whether it's Canada, Australia, Japan, Germany, I mean, we have access to over 500 million people. Right. And so in the context of that 500 million people, I mean, even if you, you know, if you adjust for that for adults and so on, the 10 million membership size is a small fraction. 
So the path to get there is going to be back to the basics of selection, quality, and affordability. So in selection, as we keep adding these new categories and new stores um, into these neighborhoods, that cross-sell percentage, the 14%, will start creeping up, and, and order frequency in these new verticals will, will increase. Remember the point I made earlier about, or, you know, about you know, purchase behavior on our platform ultimately mimicking or reflecting how human beings operate, you know, in their daily lives. So over time, as that order frequency increases, the savings opportunity increases and Dashpass starts making sense. So even if it's someone that doesn't order enough restaurant delivery today, over time, Dashpass may end up making sense for them because they use Dashpass to order the convenience goods or their grocery goods or their liquor purchases or their, um, their pet food or retail and so on and so forth. So th- there's opportunity in that front and then there's opportunity for to continue improving quality. Today, we've made consistent improvements, but still, you know, um, a reasonable number of deliveries are defective. And so we've got a bunch of work to do to make the product reliable 100% of the time so that if you're a DashPass member, the, the, the experience truly feels special. Yeah, and Mark, with respect to your second question on Prop 22, um, you, uh, you know, nothing has changed. I mean, we still think we're absolutely right on the law here. In fact, I think even the California Attorney General has supported us in this regard that, you know, when 58 to 59 percent of the you know, state population and, and voting population are saying <laughs> that, you know, they pass something into law um, that that should be legalized. Um, I, I think it's you know just common sense that that um, that that's the the right legal answer. But I think you know even more importantly than this, you know just more broadly speaking, you know we feel the same way about this issue. You know anywhere in the sense that drivers and and uh, um, you know in this type of economy ought to be able to pick wherever they want to work whenever they want to work and that flexibility is critical i mean that's what prop 22 you know stands for while giving them the protections that they deserve and we you know whether it's in the state of california or frankly any geography globally that's what we stand for which is you know to support the dasher um and you know the the voters of california believe in this the drivers believe in this um and and you know the california attorney general believes in this Okay. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Prabir. Your next question comes from the line of Brad Erickson with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Thanks. Uh, just a couple, I guess. Uh, first, you know, between the, the different categories, all the different categories you have going here in the U.S., and then obviously Volt coming on here later this year, hopefully, and then Canada and Australia, um, you know, does all of that expansion, I guess, right right in front of you, probably keep you from, say, exploring other international expansion, or should we assume other markets are sort of always under exploration? And then second, you think about the regulatory work likely to occur, um, if not, you know, in, in the future, if not already in your, you know, a lot of these international markets. Talk about just kind of how prepared you feel you are in terms of personnel and the associated expense necessary to kind of support those works and hopefully constructive dialogues. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Hey, it's Tony. I'll, I'll take both of those questions. You know, with respect to the first, uh, I think you're certainly right in saying that, you know, we have quite a lot on our plate and, you know, we're constantly again trying to invent the best possible products. And, and, um, and, and again, when you think about, you know, the portfolio of initiatives of, U.S. restaurants, new categories, our platform services, inter- international markets, and, and advertising, there's a lot of work to go around. So, you know, we, we always believe that we have to, you know, 
earn the right to serve customers in a second way by doing an excellent job in the first way. And so that's that's really, you know, what we're focused on. But look, I mean, um, uh, it doesn't mean that we're not scanning for opportunities. We're always looking for opportunities, um, you know, regardless, um, especially when, you know, we have such a robust core business that's producing positive cash flow and, you know, with a very healthy, you know, balance sheet, it gives us lots of opportunities um, to be opportunistic um, and, and go on the offensive. Um, I think with respect to your second question around regulatory preparation, yes. I mean, I think this is this has been, you know, something that's been um, a part of DoorDash really since 2013 when the company was founded. And, um, you know, this is these beliefs that we've had since day one of making sure that workers should, you know, be able to have this new standard um, where they get the flexibility that, that they're telling us, you know, over and over again with, you know, their words as well as with their feet. Um, and also the protections that we believe they deserve and, frankly, just like expire, you know, outdated laws that, you know, deserve to be expired. Um, and we think um, the productive way in doing this is that governments and businesses such as ourselves should work together across any geography um, to make sure that this actually happens from the perspective of the worker, um, not from any other perspective. And so um, that's what we're working really hard on. And we have um, best-in-class teams to get that work done. Got it. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Brian Fitzgerald with Wells Fargo. Your line is open. Thanks, guys. Uh, a couple questions. Um, uh, on the marketplace side of things, non-restaurant partners doubled to 21. Clearly, you have a lot of runway there, um, and, and, and you have a focus on product market fit for scaling. But how do you think about ways to grow um, partners uh, on the platform? And then um, any dynamics to call out with respect to the different commission points you, you launched um, you know, earlier in 21, 15, 25, 30% as, as cohorts of partners experience or use that model? Or are they moving up to the, to the different com commission points? Um, yeah, uh, I'll take the first question, and, and maybe Prabir can take the second on um, uh, the, the kind of uh, different tiers of commission points. You know, with respect to the first of adding more selection in, in these new categories, a lot of it is just doing the work, quite candidly. I, I think what has been really attractive to all of these customers is, well, I mean, look, look at what we're bringing. We're bringing the largest on-demand audience for local commerce that has the highest frequency of shopping. That's an incremental use case you know, both from their physical activities, their own digital activities, and other any other previous, you know, digital partnerships that they've signed. And so as a result of that, um, actually, you know, we're seeing quite a lot of excitement where people are starting to think of DoorDash not just as lunch and dinner, but really everything inside the neighborhood. So we're actually seeing quite a lot of progress. And, you know, but that doesn't mean that there isn't work to be done. I mean, we have to build a lot of, you know, products now that, makes sense for categories outside of restaurants, right? It, it, um, everything from the catalog to the, you know, in-store, you know, shopping process to how we think about customer support to think about, you know, how do we support, um, you know, people not just, again, on our channel, but also their own channel. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done, but I would say that the excitement from partners has been tremendous. I think, um, you know, uh, some of those names you've seen in the press and things like this and, and, um, you know, we expect um, adding a lot more partners uh, to come. 
But on the question about the, the pricing tiers, uh, just as a reminder, this was aimed at SMB restaurants, not larger restaurants, and primarily those that are coming through our self-serve channel. Um, so a small fraction of, of those have actually opted in to the pricing tiers uh, versus the prior pricing. And of the number that, uh, that opted in, the majority uh, have picked the, the two higher tiers, which was in line with what we expected. And, you know, it kind of makes sense given the, the value that we drive at the higher pricing tiers. Got it. Thanks, guys. Next question comes from the line of Jim Sanderson with North Coast Research. Your line is open. Uh, thanks for the question. Just wanted to follow up a little bit more on DashPass and wondering if you could help us to understand how the uh, new DashPass members were recruited, if this is primarily through credit card marketing programs, and then going forward as you try to expand these types of programs internationally, if you're uh, client acquisition strategy for DashPass is going to have to adjust away from credit cards. Just a little bit more texture on how that uh, growth has has developed. Yeah, the vast, major, the vast majority of the DashPass um, members are uh, through our own channels, and, as, uh, and the minority uh, are through credit card channels. And then uh, are the percentage or share of uh, DashPass members that pay full uh, membership, is that changing over time? No, it's relatively consistent, but again, it depends on, um, you remember that one of the ways we get people activated on DashPass is through a free trial period. So depending on the intensity of our marketing efforts, uh, the free or the, the trial versus paid mix changes, but it's relatively consistent. All right. Thank you. There are no further questions. This does conclude today's conference call, and thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.